don't want to scare anyone. But I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature. You got to do something. Jason's alive. He killed my friend, now he's coming for me. Welcome to Bede and Steve vs. Cab Crystal Lake the official spin-off podcast of Bede vs. the Living Dead that's hosted by Bede the Terrible Aussie Jemine and Stephen T. Bolts. Good in camp blood, ain't ya? Never come back again. It's got a death curse. This is the podcast where your hosts examine the entire Friday the 13th franchise along with its fan films, rip-offs, comic books, unproduced screenplays, and so much more. Kill her, Mommy. The following podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Jason's out there. Watching. Hey everyone, welcome to Bede and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake, the podcast where we dissect the entire Friday the 13th franchise, along with its fan films, comic books, unproduced screenplays, rip-offs, both foreign and domestic, and so much more. I am your host, Stephen T. Boltz, and with me is my most excellent co-host, Bede the Terrible Aussie Germain. Hi Steve, how are you going? I'm good, man. How are you? Oh, not too bad, thanks. Uh, just surviving uh, Christmas, and at the time of this recording, <laughs> uh, it would have already been New Year's, so we're already into January of 2024, and I'm very excited because the film that we're going to be talking about for this episode is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year, so I'm very excited for this installment of our little show. Yes, how cool is that? 40th anniversary. I am, I don't know, I'm a little thrown by that, mm. because I'm, you know, I have to reconcile my mortality. It- it's an even more uh, daunting for me, Steve, because I'm about the same, at least later in the year, I'll be the same age as this movie. So, oh, man. <laughs> Look, man, today we have uh, we had such fun last time with some guests. We, we decided we'll ring in some more. Joining us today are our guests, Super Marcy of every third podcast out there, my excellent co-host on the Stephen King Book Club. Marcy, how are you? Doing good, doing good. Thank you both for having me uh, for this episode of Feed and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake. Looking forward to it. And also with us, host of the most excellently titled A Dingo Ate My Movie, Pete Iacono. Hey, how are you going? I'm uh, blown away by the fact that this movie is 40 years old next year. That makes me, by the time next year ends, I'll be 22 years older than this movie. (sighs) That's really scary. Yes, yeah, so I, I don't like comparing like uh, anything in pop culture to when I was young because it just makes me feel very, very old. <laughs> <laughs> God. Well, of course, Marcy and Pete are joining us today to talk about Friday the 13th, the final chapter. before you have felt the terror known the madness lived 
the horror. But this is the one you've been screaming for. <gasps> Friday, the 13th, the final chapter. Jason is back. He moves like a shadow. Dark and silent. Sorry, you changed your mind? He never utters a word. He doesn't even seem to breathe. Where the hell's the corkscrew? He simply, mindlessly, <laughs> mercilessly, <laughs> kills. But now, Jason's reign of terror is over. Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Jason's unlucky day. The film was written by Barney Cohen from a story by Bruce Hidemi Sakow, but more on that in a bit. It was directed by Joseph Zito and released on April 13, 1984. The film stars Kimberly Beck as Trish, Corey Feldman as Tommy, E. Eric Anderson as Rob, Barbara Howard as Sarah, Peter Barton as Doug, the great Crispin Glover as Jimmy, Alan Hayes as Paul, Joan Freeman as Mrs. Jarvis, Judy Aronson as Samantha, Camilla and Carrie Moore as Tina and Terry, Lawrence Monosen as Ted, Bruce Mahler as Axel, Lisa Freeman as Nurse Robbie Morgan, and Ted White as Jason. Uncredited. And we'll talk about that as well. The plot summary, which I'm reading from IMDb, is as follows. After being announced dead and taken to a morgue, Jason Voorhees spontaneously revives, escapes from the hospital, and stalks a group of friends renting a house in the countryside near Crystal Lake. And information about this film, it had a budget of $2.2 million and made $33 million at the box office. A little bit down from part freeze gross, but it still ended up making enough money that Paramount were like, you know what? Maybe we should make more. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, of course, hated this movie, especially Ebert in particular, because he actually paid to see this movie and that pissed him off even more. Um... <laughs> so, of course, as we start this, we have to ask the very important question. Marcy, what was your first Friday the 13th movie? I think this might be the same for a number of people around my age group. I kind of knew sort of about the movies, but it wasn't until watching Scream that it was like, you know what, I think I kind of have to watch these Friday the 13th movies. And like a good girl, I started at the first one and then made my way through them. But I do, I have more memories of watching like, one, two, three, and four over the rest of them. I'm not sure why that is, but uh, yes, I also did want to watch uh, Friday the 13th because it starred Kevin Bacon, who I was a big fan of uh, at the time. Okay. Right. So, yeah, a bit of a, but not 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 such a exciting story, but still, you know, no, I made my good. way that's there. The, that's the way to do it. Pete, what about yourself? What was the first movie in the franchise you can remember seeing? Well, I remember getting the VHS 
for Friday the 13th and renting the shit out of it. And this was in the days where, oh, sorry, are you marked explicit? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're very explicit. You can very much swear on this show, Pete. So I remember renting the shit out of the thing. And uh, at the time, I wanted to buy it so badly. But when VHS first started, a VHS tape would have a retail value of like about $120. So I could never buy it. So I just used to rent the crap out of it all the time. And uh, I saw the first three on VHS. And I don't know why I didn't see part three in 3D because I saw Jaws 4 the year prior, Jaws 3, sorry. I saw Jaws 3 the year prior in 3D when I was living in Queensland. And I think I just pretty much put that down at the time. I was pretty much into music and and I think I just wasn't going to the movies very much. But uh, that's probably my memory. And then I just watched the crap out of these movies all the time. (laughs) It's my, and this one in particular is my it's my nice warm blanket on a cold night. And whenever I'm just really, if I'm bored and I can't think of anything to watch and I just want to sit back and turn my mind off for an hour and 30 minutes or whatever it is, I just watch this movie and it's just, you know, it's great. Well, before we start the breakdown, we have to look at our first segment on the show, the um, awkwardly titled, When the Hell yes. Are We? <laughs> so, I can't believe you're trying to do this. Oh, it's, it's impossible. It, is. <laughs> it really impossible. is. Wait till we get further along, Pete. It, it just becomes so much more fun. Of course, this film picks up just a few hours after part three finishes up, which puts us firmly, according to the Friday the 13th part three novelization, on Friday the 13th. So this movie begins on Friday, April 13th, 1984. So it goes through Friday through Sunday. And also, That's- Steve, what's interesting is like it actually matches up with the year we're also in as well. Finally, we had a problem. We matched up from the first movie. Then the second movie jumps ahead five years. And that messed us right up. Yep. So finally, we have coincided with the year of the movie's release. And that is When the Hell We Are. Still hoping to get a theme song in there, Bede. If you, I, I, I'm, I'm working on it. Let's just say <laughs> it, I am working. It, on it feels like we need something to take us out of that. So yeah, that's so... all I'm saying. <laughs> and this is where the hell we are. Oh, don't worry. I am trying to create very something very special for this segment. So I may even add it in past episodes as <laughs> well right. once I figure it out. <laughs> Go back and and retcon everything. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so that's when we are. I want to start with Pete. Give us your rundown on the film, man. Well, this movie pretty much has the best opening 15 minutes of any Friday the 13th movie, I think, anyway. I love the way we get, if you really haven't seen any of the other movies, you get brought right up to speed. And then we have that fantastic scene where all the medics and all the cops show up at the end of the previous movie and we go through the whole thing. And then we have this great ending shot where everyone's left and it's dark and you can just hear crickets chirping and it's atmospheric as shit. It's great. It's really good. The only question I've got about the intro is like, and I I don't know if we're up to that, but there's a line in this that I noticed when I was watching the other day with the subtitles. The guy comes out, I think it's one of the medics. He says, this is the guy who's been leaving the white stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? And I'm trying to figure out what that actually means. It's He actually says it and it's in the subtitles. And I'm like, I mean, it's it's not a, it's nothing to do with Oreos, I'm sure. But, but, <laughs> but I don't know if it's like slang for, you know, they're covering the bodies with white sheets or something like that. That's weird. But, Did you guys catch that? Did you? No, I didn't catch I that. I didn't but catch I'm... 
that for the two times I've watched the movie to discuss <laughs> it on this show. So clearly, and I watch everything that I can with closed captions. So I, I did not pick up on that. Someone online actually suggests that he said the wet stuff. Ah. This is the guy that's been leaving the wet stuff. And it wouldn't surprise me that the subtitles got it wrong. Probably. It so, wouldn't be the first time. We wet would assume makes... wet stuff would be blood or yeah. and mm. water. That's where I think they're going with that. And the subtitles just, they weren't going from the script or, or whatever. They just didn't have it. Or like all the rest of us, just misheard it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like I was looking up like while we were talking just to see what, is there any slang term in the medical field called the white stuff? And uh, let's just say I'm not going to be mentioning what they refer to as <laughs> the white stuff on this podcast. I don't know. I kind of like Oreos. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about this movie i think it's got the best characters in any friday film in regards to the characterizations you actually kind of care for some of them to a degree whereas most of these movies it's just like oh let's just get these kids in oh let's just fucking kill them and that's it we'll be done it's all good right these guys you actually kind of care about a little bit and uh, you feel a bit sorry for her. I think Friday 2 is kind of the same and even though the acting's really crap in Friday 3 there's a little bit of it but this one I think really does it really well and then I also think that a lot of the actors in this film went on to better things than any other Friday the 13th as well Crispin Glover and uh, Corey Feldman if you were to distill every Friday the 13th movie down to one movie this is the movie and if and if Anyone that ever wants to watch a Friday the 13th movie asks me which one I should watch. I never say the first one. I always say this is the one to watch. This is wow. the Friday the 13th film. I kind of like this movie. <laughs> so this is the quintessential Friday <laughs> for me. For me, this is the quintessential. Yeah, and and after this one, it's probably, it's the first four. Like my memories of when I was really into Friday really early on, there was, I think it was a Cronulla cinema near me. There was a showing one Saturday and they showed the first four movies back to back. And of course I went and lapped that up. It was unreal. <laughs> and and uh, it's just like, I'll gush about this movie all day. I don't think anything's bad in it. It's got the best dance sequence of any movie I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> forget, forget dirty dancing. I mean, this is, this is great. This is the best. So, yeah, it's everything in a movie. And it's got Ted White, probably my favorite Jason. Mm. All right, Beat. So how long has it been since you've seen this before you rewatched it? Oh, geez. It probably would have been a couple of years ago because I remember Monster Fest one year, they decided to do an all-night marathon of the first eight Friday the 13th films. Oh, wow. So I managed to at least watch the first four and then I tapped out. Mainly because I had family visiting and they were leaving that morning. So I wanted to go and say goodbye to them. So I managed to watch... Yeah, four. So that was probably the last time I sat down and watched four. But I think what's really cool about this film, and Pete, you already mentioned it before, is that even though this film was originally at the time meant to be the very last film, they finally kind of perfected the formula of what this franchise could be. Like Jason has just continues to be an absolute beast of a character. The deaths, like bringing Tom Safini back mm. to do the gore effects. Yes, you can definitely tell this film was cut quite a bit in certain parts just to appease the MPAA. But that being said, though, the gore scenes are still very effective, even if they're only quickly edited together. And also it has a character who would also be Jason's main like enemy for the next few films with uh, Tommy Jarvis. 
And yeah, it's just a really good film. And I think what also makes this one also stand out, and you mentioned this before too, Pete, with that opening scene, once the the ambulance of the cops leave the farm where part three was set and it stays on the farm in total silence for at least a couple of seconds, only hearing crickets, only seeing darkness. I feel like out of all the films in the franchise, this is definitely without a doubt the most atmospheric entry. And it just makes it a much more creepier film in terms of its vibe. Yeah, I think it's a pretty solid film all around. Like, yeah, there's definitely some flaws within the script and whatnot, but it's still a really good entry. And it doesn't surprise me that this film is ranked one of the best entries in the franchise. I want to throw to Marcy and ask the same question. How long has it been since you've seen this one? I don't even remember. It had been quite a while. So this was like a massive refresher. Did it hold up for you? Yeah, I think so. Like, I I remember enjoying, uh, like I said, I remember watching, like, one, two, three, four more than any of the other ones. So, like, I had memories of enjoying it, but I don't think I had remembered a lot of things about it. And those are things that both Bede and Pete have mentioned, like the atmosphere of this one. There's definitely something very creepy about it. But also, again, the characters, you kind of give a little bit of a shit about these characters, (laughs) but you also kind of introduce like this family dynamic. And then you have the little kid, Tommy Jarvis, Corey Feldman, which is another different element as well. And of course, his little arc in this is not what you'd quite expect to happen. So I think there's a lot of like really interesting and good things that make this, I think, one of the more memorable films because... For me, like, I distinctly remember certain things about it, whereas, say, two and three kind of muddle up in my head a little bit. I will add that it is one of my favourite Jason performances. I quite liked how it was done in this, so I think that is also one of the reasons why I do quite like this entry. The Friday the 13th franchise sort of follows the Star Trek franchise for me, in that the even-numbered ones are the best ones. And this one, while still better than three, and just light years better than what five will end up being, this one didn't hold up for me so much. I had fonder memories of it than what it is in reality. And I want to just jump right to my first problem. Can we just put a hold on medical examiners eating sandwiches? Over dead bodies. <laughs> Over yeah. dead bodies. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cliche, isn't it? Especially yeah. in horror, right? Yeah. I mean, the mangler does it. The howling does it. Street trash does it. My favorite movie in the world, Night of the Creeps, does it. But guys, when Mystery Science Theater does it, it's time to stop. It's time <laughs> to stop. And it's always a sandwich, right? And they always drop it on top of something. (laughs) They they like rest it on the body or something. Yes, always. It's like, come on, guys. This was maybe funny the first couple of times to stop. But Axel himself was in at least three of the Police Academy movies. Have I got that right? So he's there for a bit of comic relief. And Robbie, Nurse Robbie Morgan, played by Lisa Freeman, was fantastic. I thought she was really funny. She had great comic vibes, but it really felt odd to me that that was the tone that they shifted to after the opening scene ended Mm. on such a strangely cold atmospheric note, like you guys Mm. mentioned. And he's kind of uh, into necrophilia as well. Or he, he, he talks about it. He does. He hints about that. That was... I guess a joke, I hope a joke. But then Jason comes to life for like no reason. 
And this is fine. This we accept because, you know, we know this is going to happen. Kills these two people. Nurse Robbie for like no reason. Like he has to go out of his way to kill her. And then I think it's Rob who mentions that Jason disappeared from the hospital and two people from the hospital were missing. So again, this means that Jason, he killed them picked up their bodies, dragged them through the hospital, and took them somewhere. This is the stuff that I get stuck on. I like, put them on a gurney, pushed them back. Put, yeah. They, like, <laughs> put them in an ambulance and drove He's them. thinking it through, exactly. Although I got to say, Steve, talking about Axel and uh, Nurse Morgan, <laughs> like watching that scene, I was like, why does this give me so much Halloween 2 vibes? Like with the scenes <laughs> in the hospital with J.B. Lee Curtis. Because I swear the character of Axel is like one of the same characters from Halloween 2. You know, that's sort of like that skeevy member of the hospital, you know, whether it's like, <laughs> like even though it was like a nurse in part two and it's a mortician here, but it's still that kind of same vibe in terms of performance. But, but yeah. also what was up with that weird exercise tape? I'm so glad you could come. Axel, you are the Super Bowl of self-abuse. I just came to watch the news. Thank you, Mel. And so begins yet another chapter in the story most residents of Crystal Lake had prayed was over. A trail of mangled bodies has finally led local authorities to conclude that... I really came to watch the news. positive identification of the body, but to answer your question, yes, the uh, man responsible for the murders in Wessex County this past week is at this moment in the Wessex County Medical Center board. Yeah. Thank you, Officer hey. Jameson. That's welcome. Yeah, it's you they're talking about on TV, sure pal. I don't believe you, Axel. actually resurrected jason because i have a feeling yes, maybe it was maybe it was i thought i could be wrong but i thought there's some trivia about that that the, one of the girls that's in that exercise tape is actually the girl that's in part six in jason's yes. in the back of the winnebago with that guy yeah so she's in that exercise tape. the other thing about that scene and yes i agree with everything said thus far but it has the most beautiful little piece of filming when they push Jason into the freezer and there's that little wisp of air, that little yes. little bit of uh, uh, that little bit of condensation coming out of his mouth. I think that's amazing, which he had to use cigarette smoke because they didn't have cold air. So, right. <laughs> yeah. So the opening sequence for this one was weird for me because then we smash cut to Trish and her mom running in the woods. 
And now we're entering this family dynamic, which we haven't had before. So mm. this is this is starting to get really interesting. We meet Trish Jarvis, her mom, and then Tommy, who uh, is a horror kid. Now, for me, watching this at 13, this was brilliant. I was finally being represented in <laughs> uh, in film, you know? I think we were all Tommy Jarvis at that point and could really get into it. Uh, these masks that he made, sorry, he modified, was just like my dream. I mean, at that point, you know, you wanted to grow up and be Tom Savini, yeah. you know? And Tommy's set up as possibly just another victim. And it doesn't look good for Tommy towards the end there. But he ends up being our final guy. How cool is that? It is pretty cool. You can't say that about many horror films where if the kid is not the killer, like they're the remaining final, you know, person. So That's right. Usually they're tagging along. They're a sidekick. They're something. And Tommy turns out to be the main man, which is pretty cool. Well, I guess um, we might as well... Uh, I guess we need to talk about, because we got a new batch of teenagers or college kids in this one, and they too are going on holiday to a cabin in Crystal Lake. You think after giving all the murders that have happened in the past week <laughs> in Crystal Lake, people would have been like... Their plans. Exactly, exactly. But then again, this is this is not the age of like social media where people are very much aware of what's going on in the world. Nobody knows anything <laughs> in this film. But to be fair, it's on TV and radio. So surely, yep. you know, being high school, college, whatever they're meant to be, you would have heard something. Come on. Exactly. You can imagine all these uh, TikTokers out there and, and making <laughs> Exactly. Hashtag, hashtag Crystal Lake Killer or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> See, when they reboot the franchise, that's exactly what's going to be happening. But yeah, but with the terms of the actual, uh, you know, the college kids in this version, of course, there are definitely ones that stand out and other ones kind of like, yeah, mainly because the film doesn't really give them much to do. Although I have to say this, mm -hmm. and one thing what really struck me about this film again is like, they got two characters who are named after other characters in previous entries. <laughs> you got yeah, that was Paul, troubling. And then of course you got Ted played by the last American virgin himself, Lawrence Monison. <laughs> and like his name's Ted and we already had a Ted like all the way back on uh, part two. And then we also had and a the, Paul in part two. And they're the yeah. same archetype as well. I didn't find them unlikable. I didn't exactly find them likable either. I think they were not developed enough to be one way or the other. Oh, yeah. They were likable by default. Until Ted opens his mouth, then he's just immediately unlikable. But, you know, I thought Sarah was probably the most likable. She had a bit of a character going on. And Jimmy, Crispin Glover. But everyone else, they don't stand out as characters. Nobody had a personality. True, but do characters really stand out in any of these? Like, I believe they do. <laughs> it's oh, I believe they do. I think, throwback to part two, you know, you've got um, the first Ted, Ted the original. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, even looking at, what was his name, B, the fella in the wheelchair, Mark. Oh, Mark. It? Mark, yes. Yeah. Mark had a story arc going on. Yeah. You know, I found that each of those characters actually did have a backstory. Part three... Maybe not so much, but we definitely had, you know, Shelley had something going on. You know who these people were. I probably couldn't tell you which character Peter Barton played and which character Alan Hayes played. Right. You know, which was Doug, which was Paul. They're, they're completely interchangeable. Yes. And that for me is where this sort of leads toward exactly what you were saying in the beginning is that this sort of cements everything that Friday the 13th would 
become, which is to say, completely disposable teens. Yeah, hmm. absolutely. And that's a that was a bit of a letdown for me because, like I said, I remembered really liking part four. Turns out I just liked it more than three. I think what's really interesting about these first four movies, I know we're talking about this one particular one, but I just want to make the point. I think what the great thing about these first four movies is they're kind of like they came out quite quickly one after mm. another. Mm. And they're kind of like the temper of the time, right? They're kind of like very 80s. So they've got, when you watch them now, they've got this really nostalgic feel to them, right? And, yeah. and I think when I, if I was to sort of say, okay, what's the percentage of me that thinks this is a really fun Friday the 13th and which, how much of it is nostalgia? I'd say probably 40% of my love for these movies, especially the first four, is nostalgia. Yeah. More than and it just gives me, it takes me back. It might be different. I don't know. It might be different for you guys, but it takes me back to a time when I was like either a late teen or a young adult. So for me, it's very much a nostalgic thing, right? Mm. And I think that that has a lot to do with it. Like, like I said, it's great comfort food to me because I can sit back and it just has that 80s vibe. Uh, 100%. 100%. I, when I think of these movies, I don't think of how great the movies were. Yeah. I think of where I saw them, who I saw them with, the fun that we had afterwards talking about them, you know, that sort of experience. It's not so much the movie that I enjoy, but the nostalgia that comes with it. Watching it on a Wednesday afternoon same. doesn't know the same mm. effect. And that that's where I get tripped up. I still, every year, every Friday the 13th in the year, I watch one of these. I pull them out and watch, you know, whatever I'm feeling at the time. And a couple of years back, we did the Tommy Triple, which was fun. And it's a great way to start, you know, start with this one, which is one of the better movies. Go to five, you know, but then you get to end on six, which is truly a high point wow. for the series. Yeah, this one, at least it does move things along. And I felt three didn't so much. This one had some, not so much the teens that were interesting for me, but I really enjoyed Rob. I think Rob is a character that the series needs more than anything. We have Eric Anderson, who is playing the brother of mm. Sandy from part two, and he's out investigating her murder. This is Jack McGee from The Incredible Hulk. He's seeking the killer. He's trying to solve the mystery. Here. Well, it's, well, it's good someone's uh, trying to work out what's going on at this uh, cast area. <laughs> Well, we have several different sheriffs over, may I point out, the last five days, <laughs> there have been a couple of different sheriffs who've been on this case, and nobody's getting anywhere. And I do enjoy the Rob character for exactly that reason. I think mm. Rob is the through line that this needs, not Jason and a bunch of disposable teens. Jason can't be the through line because they can't really decide what Jason's story is. It changes from movie to movie. But if you've got this one character consistent, that's a lot more interesting. And I feel like they dropped the ball with Rob. Rob's going to be the big hero and then just dies horribly and pathetically. Um, <laughs> well, I gotta... Exactly. <laughs> Well, I will say this, that line in particular just haunts me when how it's delivered because that is actually a terrifying thing, like hearing somebody just yelling, yeah. he's killing me, he's killing me. But apparently the uh, he's killing me scene was actually inspired by a real-life event that happened. Interesting. That's a bit yeah. morbid. Yeah, because uh, I'll read it here from IMDb because uh, 
It says here, uh, Joseph Zito based Rob's death, with which he screams, he's killing me, as Jason attacks him on an article he read in the New York Times about the real-life murder of Kitty Gen- Genovese. I probably put Genovese. Genovese. But, Genovese. Yeah, Genovese, yes. Who was stabbed to death in the middle of the night while walking to her apartment. The article claimed that 38 neighbors heard her scream, oh my God, he's stabbing me, he's killing me, and no one did anything to help her. And uh, coincidentally, the murder occurred on Friday, March 13th, 1964. Like I said, it's morbid. Now knowing that, it makes total sense. Although Joseph Dino does say in the same thing that upon viewings of the film, he realized that in which the way the scene was filmed made Rob seem pathetic and weak rather than making Jason appear Mm. merciless. And often that would cause audiences the burst out laughing personally mm. i think the whole scene is very haunting but that's just me but i was gonna say steve like is rob the dick haller of this film is he is this a dick <laughs> move for rob in this film i was absolutely thinking of this before and it's definitely a subset of a dick move the dick move for new listeners and possibly pete's benefit here as well somebody who shows up only to distract the killer from the hero or heroine and then be killed we found that in part three the character Mm -hmm. ali did this we thought he was dead he shows up just before chris is taken out ali shows up again jason is distracted he dispatches ali and then Chris is able to to escape. And I do think, Bede, I think you're absolutely right. He pulls the dick move here by getting <laughs> getting himself killed in order that Trish can escape. But now that's sort of thinking about it now, being that Rob is this character who is essentially meant to be, you know, this member of, I mean, this family member of one of his previous victims who goes out to fight him and to take revenge. What's interesting, though, is like he does kind of serve a purpose in a way because the character of Tommy would eventually become that type of character over the course of the next couple of films, especially when number six goes around, when he still feels that Jason's still out there and he wants to do something about it. And then, of course, once he accidentally brings Jason back alive, he has to do whatever it takes to take him out. (laughs) It's ridiculous. He's hoist by his own petard on that one. I I do love that. I do love that. But that's what I was going to say. They dropped the ball with Rob, giving him a very near pointless death. And then they tried to do it with Tommy, but again, didn't really plan this out. Tommy, at the end of this one, looks like he's obviously Mm -hmm. he's he's a bit damaged. Okay, so we meet him in the next one. And clearly he's uh, disturbed. The end of that one further suggests that Tommy is going to be the killer. And then part six says, yeah, no, we're not doing that. We're going to ignore that completely. Now Tommy has finally come to fruition in six. Tommy is finally the hero that he was set up to be. And then part seven, it's just, you know, Jason meets Carrie. Have you listened to the commentary for this film? I listened to it the other day. Oh, I have not. It's really interesting. Like Joe Zito was saying that he was told the brief of this movie was to kill Jason, right? That that was going to be it. As far as Paramount was concerned at the time, that this was going to be it. Mm-hmm. This was going to be Jason's mm. life. And in some ways, it actually would have been great if it was <laughs> yeah. quadrilogy. Is that the word? And Joe Zito was saying that that very last shot of Tommy looking over the shoulder with his with that weird look on his face, he put in there just in case he said Paramount wanted to 
put Tommy's story forward as being the evil one in the next movie. He kind of left it in as a little mm. Easter egg for them if they wanted to go that way. And, and I feel like that's that's what you get from that scene. So if you're new to this and you're watching it, you kind of expect that the person wearing a, a hockey mask and killing people is going to be Tommy Jarvis. Thanks, Pete. I wondered about that. I know part three was actually supposed to be the final film as well. <laughs> they just never really told anybody about it, um, I guess. And you know, suddenly we've got a part yep. four, you know, absolutely called the final chapter. This is it. Mm. We're done. Except maybe not. You know, <laughs> when you give us a damn you, Josito, there's something there at the end that just left this kernel of maybe it's not over. Mm. And then you know, I don't know. I don't think they followed it through. Hmm. Like Tommy could have been the Rob of this film in a couple of movies and just was not. I think Rob's story is never given quite enough focus. Beat and I spoke early on in the first episode about whether Steve Christie was possibly being set up as the killer. And I kind of feel like they're doing that with Rob here, but not to the extent that it's actually su successful. He's carrying the machete several times. We see just boots on the ground, and it turns out to be Rob and not Jason. We see him silhouetted several times. He's holding the machete. And I wonder if there wasn't some interplay there where they were, they were trying to set Rob up as a killer, even though we already had Jason firmly established as the killer this mm. what i'm saying in short is the script feels like a mess and it's not a surprise i think joseph zito was hired as both director and writer but he didn't want to write but since it was in his contract he got the extra money so he paid barney cohen to write the script out of that money mm. so while joseph zito is having conversations with one of the producers phil scuderi at night he would then relay those notes to barney cohen who then wrote the script. Where Bruce Hidemi Sakao comes in, I don't know. Do you have any info on that? Uh, not that I could find, but I think he probably wrote an earlier draft, I would imagine. Because I know, based on information that I have read, I know that uh, the character Chris, in the previous film, they wanted her to come back for this sequel. But uh, the actress who played her decided that... that she wasn't going to so I guess it was one of those cases like maybe they had a bit of a first draft idea for a, for a story for part four but then once she turned it down they kind of reworked it and changed it to all new characters at least that's kind of the impression that I got from the information I've read and also I think we got to remember at least um when number three was was made at the time, and for quite a number of years afterwards, it was the highest grossing entry in the franchise. And even though it was, even though they kept saying like, this was going to be the last one, I think again, money talks and they thought, mm -hmm. oh, let's make another one. But by the time this one comes around, which, because up to this point, they were releasing a Friday the 13th film every year. But this one came out two, nearly two years after part three. And by this point, they kind of had to realize that we might as well make this one the last one because at this point, the slasher genre was already starting to peter out mm -hmm. in the early 80s. Mm. And also Siskel and Ebert kept saying like that was probably the main reason why they wanted to make this film. But Paramount have stated that it was more to do that, you know, the genre was kind of on its last legs more than anything else. So they thought, you know, if we're going to make a 
fulfill. We might as well do it now and then send it out with a bang. But I think it's also interesting too, because we've talked about like how some of the characters basically become stock characters we've seen in this franchise, or at least this film started the formula of what the next entries would be. But it's interesting though, because with the first few Friday the 13th films, when those were made, by this point, we've already had a lot of different slasher films. So in a way, part four could easily be seen as more embracing the elements of what Mm. other slasher films were doing at the time. Hence why some of the characters are much more stock rather than well-rounded compared to others. So I think it's interesting. Yeah, so I think that's interesting. But that being said, though, we do have some character. I think having the family dynamic there with the Jarvis family definitely adds something different. And for me, I guess Mm. that's the main focus of this film is them with the college kids, despite a few members of the group, they can be stock characters because they're just there to be fodder for Jason and our emotional connection would be the Jarvis family Mm. because we get a lot more time with them than we do with some of the other characters in the of the college kids although that being said though we do have to talk about uh Chris McGlover who definitely is the biggest star (laughs) to have come out (laughs) of this film and he is fantastic to me he is the character Shelly could have been in part three, because I do have my issues with Shelley, but I find Jim to be a much, like he definitely has the same kind of qualities as Shelley, even though I think Chris McGlover in this film is just like Shelley is a very insecure character, but he's a very interesting character because Chris McGlover, based on everything I read about his work on this film, he brought a lot to that character to make him much more interesting Mm. and quirky. So I want to talk about that, but uh, Marcy, can you give us your thoughts on Chris McGlover's amazing performance in this movie? I mean, he's kind of the reason you want to watch this movie, I feel like. (laughs) If you Mm. see the dancing clip, like, you kind of want to watch this movie, but yeah, like, I've always thought he is quite a talented actor, and you can see he's trying to bring more to just a regular kind of awkwardy character, so I do feel like he makes it memorable, but just I think in general with the characters, you do care more about the Jarvis family than the stock standard teen characters. But I think with how the actors try and at least portray them, you care a little bit about them. I mean, maybe not the last American Virgin because he's so annoying and you really <laughs> want him to to get killed, but that doesn't happen uh, straight away. But yeah, I think it's an interesting and good combination of characters that we hadn't really gotten in a Friday the 13th film before. But yeah, without a doubt, out of the teen characters, Crispin Glover is the one that sticks out the most. And, you know, he he feels like a genuine kind of character at that age that he's like really awkward, whereas some of the others like are awkward but they're not like leaning into it and kind of trying not to be and it's just making it worse where he knows how to do that he can do that naturally i feel like he's ad-libbing almost oh yeah line like he's he looked at the line and went yeah okay but no (laughs) you know the scene where they're in the kitchen and ted's got his his hand sticking out of his zipper and (laughs) and one of the girls walks in i can't remember who it is do you remember who it is Oh, that's the thing. It's hard for me to tell who's Tita and which one's Terry in this movie. (laughs) I think it was Tita walks in and Jimmy goes, he thinks that's funny. 
he thinks that's a funny thing that he's doing. You know, and just the, the rhythm of that line, and the way he says it. He is definitely the high point of this film. Pete, are you a fan? I love him. The things I've heard about him with this film is like, um, I think one of the casting people, I think it's in Crystal Lake Memories or something on the... Yeah. Uh, they're kind of saying with him, you kind of really know, never know what performance you're going to get from him. Mm. So I think he's one of these guys that it's kind of, he's probably a blessing and a curse to have mm-hmm. it. But you're like, what's he going to do? Is he going to kind of stick to what we want or is he just going to do his own thing? And I think in this film, he does a lot of his own thing, mm. but it really works for the film. He's pretty funny. Like him and is it Lawrence Monison, the guy? He's- yeah. Like there's, there's a couple of scenes between them that are quite good. Like the scene in the back of the car early on, apparently those two worked on that whole scene themselves and ad-libbed the whole, mm. okay. whole okay. you know, what did they call it? Something fuck was a dead, dead fuck. fuck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the computer and all that sort of stuff. That was something <laughs> they worked out together and uh, and all that sort of thing. But I, I think he's great for the film. And of course, like, he's got the best joke death in any any Friday the 13th. Betty, so to speak. And would you lighten up on her? She's all right. I'll say she's all right. Uh, you should have treated her right. I mean, that girl wanted to be treated right. I did. I did. I treated her right. I treated her right. That's what's driving me so crazy. First, I would call her, and she would take my calls, and she would have something that she'd have to do, and then she wouldn't even take my calls. I mean, can you figure that? What the fuck happened? Let me put in the old computer. No, I'm serious about this. Yeah, the computer don't lie. Now. And also another reason, kind of like Shelley in part three, there's a reason why people still talk about this character, like even years after this entry came out, is because of Crispin Glover's performance. Like we all know that Crispin Glover would go on to be a big name character actor in Hollywood, but yeah, but even then he does give a performance that really does stand out. And I think he's one of the most sympathetic characters in the whole franchise and then when he does get killed off it's always a very sad thing in quite a brutal way as well but we'll get to that death a little bit later because i feel like that's (laughs) going to be 
a topic of conversation, but I wouldn't say it's like um, what I talked about earlier with this film was, of course, the atmosphere and mood, particularly with the last half of the film being shot in the rain, which happens quite a lot in this franchise because we <laughs> had a lot of scenes in the rain throughout this series so far. But I think um, how it's shot by Juan Fernandez, like, because he's worked with Joseph Zeta on mo pretty much all of his work, including The Prowler, which was definitely the film that got Joseph Zito the job on this film. And I think visually the film, like I said, it has this kind of atmospheric, creepy vibe to it. And it's just a beautifully shot film with the use of light and shadow. And also how certain shots are staged are really cool. Like um, I believe Tina's death I found quite interesting because it's basically mostly done in one shot where you have her coming out to get her bike and she's just there. The camera's kind of closing in on the house. And then of course we see the shadow of Jason coming behind her, poking her with this rod. And then of course she gets flung into the wall of the building. So there's a lot of great shots in here. And I was like looking up Juan Fernandez's other work. And to my shock, one of the earliest films he was the cinematographer on was Deep Throat. <laughs> oh, no. He, the same person who <laughs> shot Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter, was the cinematographer on Deep Throat. <laughs> That's fantastic. But he also shot like Children of the Corn and a few other films as well. So he has quite an extensive cinematography background in terms of genre fare. But yeah, I just really like the visual vibe of this film. It just, it's definitely one that makes it stand out from the other entries was just the atmosphere of it all. Yeah, it's got great atmosphere. I think it's shot really well. I like the fact that once again, when I was listening to the commentary, he was Joseph Zito was talking about all the things he wanted to do in this film and they were all big no-nos in making films because he wanted a dog in the film. He wanted a child in the film. He wanted rain and he wanted a house across the road that they didn't have. So they actually built a whole house across the road and uh, all this kind of stuff that is a big no-no in film. And, you know, I think they were talking to the guy playing Rob. Uh, there was an interview in Chris Lake Memories and he was saying, well, when I read the script, I didn't really notice all the stuff about the rain at the end. And then I realized we're in rain for like, days at a time <laughs> so yeah so it was quite an interesting shoot but it looks great it looks fantastic on film mm. i think we should also talk about ted white as jason now it's interesting that when he was brought on to play jason he was the oldest actor to play jason because he was almost 60 years old and he was actually a stunt double for john wayne in past productions and like he was kind of ashamed to be a part of this film. And that's why he, if you notice, there's no actor credited as Jason mm. in the film. But he did say later on that he did regret turning down being in other entries of the franchise. I'd read that, but I'd also read that it was in protest of Joe Zito's treatment of mm. some of the actors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was definitely some behind the scenes stuff going on, particularly in the scene where uh, Sam is getting stabbed in the little raft on the lake because they shot that for hours upon hours and it was just cold, freezing water. And Ted White saying, like, she was basically turning blue yeah. mm. at a certain point. And even though he kept saying to Joseph Zito, oh, we need to get a warm and all that. And Joseph Zito, because he was under a lot of pressure trying to get this film done as quickly as possible. And then, of course, Ted White and Joseph Zito had a big fight about it. And, of course, they were able to get her out and warm her up. And then she was able to go back and finish the scenes. But, yeah, there was a lot of kind of stuff like that during the course of this film. So I don't 
blame Ted White because at this point he's already a veteran in mm-hmm. the industry. Mm-hmm. So he, if anyone knows anything about stunts and then what actors go through, it's him. So at, in a way, I you got to commend him to kind of at least standing up for the actors if they were being mistreated mm-hmm. on the set. That's where I was going with that. Mm-hmm. He threatened to quit if it wasn't addressed. Yeah. He also um, kept himself apart from all the actors mm-hmm. as well. He was method. He's very method. Yeah, yeah. We started watching the X Files a couple of months ago. There was an episode that he's in, and he's a, he's working in a service station attendant or something like that, and uh, it comes up. And I'm like, oh my God, that's Ted White. And my wife <laughs> goes, who's he? And I'm, I'm <laughs> oh, no. I can definitely see your point, Pete, how he's one of your favorite Jason actors because A, he's a very imposing guy because he's tall, like he's at least 6'4, but he has this kind of ferocity about him. He definitely took like what worked in previous incarnations of Jason in two and three took elements of those performances and then created his own character by making this imposing figure who I would say is even more of a force of nature in this film than he was in the two previous entries. For sure. The way he sits through that door is amazing. It doesn't surprise me at all that uh, Corey Felber was terrified of him throughout the course of filming because apparently Ted White hated Corey Feldman throughout this entire film. Oh no, why? I, I, because he felt like he was being a brat, but even though all the other cast members had nice things to say about Corey Feldman, he felt he was like a bit of a brat during filming. And the scene where he smashes through the window to grab Tommy, those were real screams from Corey Feldman. That was not acting. He was legit terrified in those scenes because he wasn't expecting it at that moment. And yeah, he was like freaking out. I think what he said was when they set up that scene, because it was all shot in one thing, they would have beats they would have to wait between different things, right? And Mm. the last bit was Ted White coming through and grabbing him. And though he was there expecting it after a couple of beats, waiting for him to be grabbed, and it didn't happen. And Corey Feldman's thinking, oh, I wonder what's going on. It didn't, he didn't, he hasn't grabbed me. Then all of a sudden he grabs him. He apparently did that on purpose, just held it back a little bit, just so he gives him that fright. And like you were saying, Bede, everything you see on screen is, is abject fear from Corey. That's Feldman. a good call. Yeah. yeah, that was a good call on Ted White's part. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, um, also, Marcy, I need to ask you this. Mm-hmm. Now, when you and I watched this movie together in prep for the show, you noticed that quite an interesting uh, thing that was going on throughout the entire film involving Windows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. When we watch it, just see, I, maybe they just had like a lot of budget for glass. I don't know, but a lot of people seem to go through windows in this film. Like it just kept happening. It was just something I noticed. It's one of the things that I now I'm going to remember about this film, along with the not psycho psycho type score. Yes. I did not realize how psycho-y the score was until this. I'm like, oh shit, yeah, okay. Also, a lot of people going through windows and the weird exercise tape thing as well. <laughs> Which um, is very real that I looked up, like Pete said. Like it's a very yeah, it's real, a real tape. Yeah. Oh, it was kind of want to watch it. Um <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like this film does have a lot of things going for it, and apparently people going out of windows is uh, one of those things. 
So Zito's a big fan of defenestration, as you say. But what was the deal with Gordon? Gordon being the dog. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's like even the dog goes through the bloody window. But what exactly is happening? Because we hear him whimpering. We hear some squealing and whimpering. We assume he's being killed. But then he just, he's like, fuck it, I'm out. And he leaps through the window and never to be seen again. Has, has Jason ever killed an animal? Before this, I know Michael Myers likes killing dogs, but I don't know about Jason. I don't think so. Bede, we talked about that in part two. Yeah, we did because we weren't sure if Muffin, the dog, was killed or not because two of the campers, including Rob's sister, stumbled across the corpse of a dog that was totally ripped to shreds. Yeah. And we kind of talked about, like, it that dog looks exactly the same like Muffin. Maybe, like, that was Muffin, and then when we see her at the end, like, the whole scene was a dream sequence because i'm now getting convinced like that final section was a dream sequence the more i think about it especially with um the last few entries also having ending on a dream sequence and also this film because this film was had an alternate ending that was also a dream sequence (laughs) but was cut because like gordon the dog we don't know what happens to (laughs) mrs jarvis in this movie because Pretty much, they just both vanish from the film, but we do have an alternate ending where Trish has a dream where she sees in the house and it's the following morning, then she sees water dripping down upstairs. She goes up and she finds her mum dead in the bath that's full of bloodied water. And then she goes to pick her up and then her eyes go white, uh, Mrs. Jarvis's eyes, and then she turns around and Jason's there about to stab her and that's when she wakes up in the hospital at the end. You seen so, that scene? I saw it like in uh I do have the Blu-ray because I know those Blu-ray, those yeah. scenes are on the on the Blu-ray, but also the Crystal Lake Memories documentary also showed that alternative ending as well. That reminds me, I wanted to talk about Tommy at the very end. Yes. Sort of doing a callback to Ginny in the second one, where mm. Ginny pretends to be Mrs. Voorhees. Mm. Tommy here pretends to be young Jason. The movie is sort of recycling itself. Mm. You know, I agree. It's one... recycling, but it's still trying to do something slightly different. Whereas no, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. Tommy like it, it says... does the, you know, it's I'm going to go into that childlike thing because I am a child and appeal <laughs> to Jason's childlikeness, whereas... Yeah, you know, oh, I've got to pretend to be Mrs. Voorhees, blah, blah, blah. Like, I think that's a cool way. Like, you do a callback, it doesn't have to be the same. When you make it slightly different, it's more interesting. With Tommy, what gets me, and I find it kind of funny, is that he was this grand makeup artist and making these masks and everything all the way through. And then at the end, all he does is really is shave his head. (laughs) There was nothing beyond that. He could have found the news clippings earlier. He could have seen the artist rendering of Jason earlier and started making a mask of this and then whacked that on. But no, we're just going to have him shave his head and go downstairs. And that was fine. I mean, it worked and it didn't bother me when I was 13. It's watching it now. I'm like, hmm, this was a huge setup for very, very little payoff. Yeah, Um, I I felt that when I when I rewatched it, like he goes through the trouble of like shaving his head and it looks both horrible and fantastic job but <laughs> you, you think back to the mask it's like why didn't he just like whip together some kind of mask quickly because that would have made more sense to kind of have those masks in play rather than just be like oh we're tributing uh tom savini with yeah. all this yeah you know? maybe yeah. He was out of latex or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say this. He did a very good job with, like, shaving his head in that short amount of time because I can imagine, like, Trisha's downstairs trying to fight off Jason. 
and he's up there like, all right, just give me a second. I just got to shave my hair with these little scissors. <laughs> Actually, what's interesting though, is that he does kind of use his makeup skills because in a deleted section from the film that was featured in the Crystal Lake Memories documentary before he actually starts shaving his head or at least during it from what I remember, he actually starts putting eye shower on to yeah. make himself look like Jason mm. as much as possible. Oh, well, there so, you go. See, yeah. That's all I was missing. Yeah. That's all I wanted. And he didn't even really shave his head. Isn't that sad? Like, <laughs> I only found out the other day. I never knew, right? Because like he only wore a bald head cap because there was no way he was going to shave his head and his parents wouldn't let him or something like that. Mm. And, uh, so what they found out, apparently in town or somewhere else in town, there was like some, some bikey get together on or something. And they found some bikey families where the kids were only too happy to shave their head. And so they actually sure. used bikey kids to shave their heads. So. <laughs> wow. The stuff you hear on commentaries. It's amazing. <laughs> That's why I love it. That's why physical media all the way, baby. Yes. Absolutely. 100%. That's right. We're, we're all uh, 100% uh, big fans of physical media on this podcast. That, But actually, what's interesting, though, because I'm like looking up information on this film, well, I have been doing my research over the last few days, is that do you guys realize as an actor in this film, the only actor in this film to have worked with Alfred Hitchcock? Ooh, who's that? It's actually Kimberly Beck, because as a child, she actually appeared in a small part in the film Marty. Oh, oh. So that's why, like, um, in the Crystal Lake Memories documentary and also other things that I've read, like, when she was on set, she and Corey Feldman bonded very quickly because she was very protective of him on set and tried to make sure that he had at least much as of a childhood as he possibly can because she, too, you know, grew up as a child actor. So she already knew what that was like. And even on the first day of filming when they were shooting this film, she and uh, E. Eric Anderson actually took Corey Feldman out trick-or-treating. So you can definitely tell, like, based on everything that I've read and also seen in the documentary, that there was definitely a lot of love and support between the actors and they all seem to have got on really well. And that's why I think with having the Jarvis family in this film, again, what makes it more unique compared to not just in this franchise, but other slasher films that came out of this period was that family dynamic because, as the filmmaker said, like, you never saw any of that in a film. Mm -hmm. It was like just a bunch of random teenagers or college kids, but you never saw, like, a family unit being affected by mm. a slasher killer. And that, to me, when you see them, especially in the scenes when they're interacting with each other, like, when Jason actually starts going on his rampage, you actually do feel terrified for him because you find them likable as a family. And also mm. having a kid in there, it's like, the way this franchise is, is Jason going to kill a kid in this movie? So... <laughs> I mean, it's Corey Feldman. Like, we would know Corey Feldman would be a big star later on down the track or within the first few years of this film's release, but we didn't know what was going to happen. Like, if you went into this film not knowing who he was, then you'd be terrified for, like, is this movie going to go there? Is this movie really going to kill off a yeah. kid? They might have done that in part six as well. They were close to There were lots of kids. Mm. In there. It was interesting. I mean, yeah, go ahead, Pete. Sorry. I was just going to say, it was, it was very interesting that... Apparently, this and Gremlins came out at almost the same time. He was saying it was a very interesting time to be him because he <laughs> had these two big movies coming out. I mean, he was like the coolest kid in the 80s. You've got him in, you know, fighting Jason with Gremlins. He went to go look for a dead body with his friends. <laughs> he would try and help battle vampires in a small town. Like, 
Corey Feldman just seemed like the coolest like ever in the 80s. Then what happened? Uh, he didn't make very good movies after that. And but... I don't really know much about his musical career. No, <laughs> his music. I've seen these guys doing videos about him on YouTube and uh, he always, they have all these clips of him in bands, but things always go wrong. Like, so he'll, his guitar won't work or somebody he'll tell off the keyboard player because they screwed up a piece or something like that. And it's almost, some people are wondering whether it's happening because he's just not very good at things like that. Mm. He does it on purpose. And and I can kind mm. of see it because back years ago, I once had this concept for a band and the whole idea of the band was, is we're going to be the worst band ever. <laughs> and, and it was very difficult to actually play music badly, but do it properly, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And, yes, um, and, we decided to nix that. It didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, he's had this very interesting musical career. And obviously he was good in Crystal Lake Memories as a, as a narrator and his little bit in that. So. Mm. I think it's time that we talk about Savini. Yes. yes. Coming back to uh, this franchise because he didn't do part two or three, but he actually wasn't the original makeup artist. It was actually a different guy, but then the other guy couldn't do it. And Joseph Zito, since he just worked with Savini on The Prowler, asked him, oh, do you want to come back and do the final Friday the 13th film? And Savini was like, yeah, let's do it. I want to be, I created Jason. I might as well be the one who takes him out in this film. Yeah, there's some good stuff in here all the way through. I think it's Doug who had, for me, the most memorable death of any Friday for a long time was just getting his head pushed into the back of the shower. Mm. And the way it just, it didn't splat, but you could see it give yeah, just enough. That was fantastic. The death of Jason, though, is what stands out for me. Oh, yeah. It's the best. Sliding down the machete. Mm. Yeah, that's a great effect. That's a fantastic effect. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's the one and and when i first saw this at the movies unfortunately in australia that that shot like that scene was cut to video oh no there was hardly any of the sliding down the machete and it was only years after that that we finally got a version of it that had the whole thing yeah, yeah uncut wow Oh, yeah. Like his work in this film is pretty spectacular. And you know, when you're getting Tom Savini to do makeup work, mm. like it is going to look fantastic. Like particularly when that machete goes through Jason's hair that it's, and his hair kind of splits apart. It just mm. looks fantastic. Marcy, what's the standout for you? It's a tough one because I quite like a lot of um, like the kills and stuff in this film. But, I, you know, almost like when we're talking about earlier with in the hospital scene, like I, I know it's like not the best kill, but it's kind, it was kind of nice for um Axel just to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> he deserved it. Yes. And again, I mentioned a lot of people go through, a lot of things go through windows. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously the standout. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I forgot. Even though, even though he technically doesn't go through a window, uh, Doug does go through the uh, the shower screen, so that kind oh, of I mean, <laughs> almost, almost there, yes. <laughs> but also what's interesting, if you watch, like, I guess, because again, like I was saying before, like the MPAA really got them to cut down a lot of shots in this film. Like, when you actually see the effects in full on both, you know, the Blu-ray and also in Crystal Lake Memories, how they show Doug's death is interesting because how it's looked like with Jason's trying to crush his face, you can see like what probably would have killed Doug is like his nose cartilage is just being shoved right up to his brain. Mm. So it just looked like, even though, yeah, you can tell it's been cut, but I think having it cut in that sort of way where it's so quick, it actually adds an impact. And then when you see Jason's head go down the machete and that lingers on that, that makes that scene even more effective in terms of the gore and makeup in mm. this film oh, absolutely i mean as horror kids we were there for the gore like we wanted mm. to see the gore there's something to be said about leaving it to the imagination showing mm. us just enough to get our imagination going but that's not why we were there that's not what we came to see when it comes to that final scene and i'm so so sad that you guys didn't get to see that on the initial run because we were cheering in the cinema like as much as jason is the horror hero that was such an amazing effect that just blew us all away i remember seeing that and would have seen it with my buddy vince and just absolutely going nuts because although they probably butchered the earlier kills i know there were some where they cut away way too soon by the time you get to that one as you say bead they just give you everything exactly we get some good kills we get the the knife through the boat and we get the mm. spear gun in the groin <laughs> yes oh the spear gun from part three left over from part three yeah. yes and around crystal lake he must have just kept it and <laughs> uh, we get the axe through the door which i don't know how that works but anyway oh the physics on that are just way off aren't they <laughs> <laughs> just have yeah. to be standing exactly the right place and everything. i mean and, sure uh, <laughs> and we get the corkscrew in the hand which i love and then we get mm. jimmy basically crucified on the door and this is where I think Jason is really brutal in this movie. When he goes, mm. he just rips Jimmy down from the door where he's nailed him up. It's just so brutal. It's great. I think what's interesting is, I, I think I read this somewhere as well, that up to this point, this was the goriest entry mm. in the franchise, but also had the most nudity. 
And I think it kind of makes sense because Joseph Zito, based on a lot of the films that I've seen of his, he definitely is a guy who kind of revels in having a bit of exploitation mm. in his work. So you definitely get a sense of that a lot in wait this till, film. Wait till you see next one. Wait till you see the next movie. Yeah. Yes, the true uh, exploitation uh, entry <laughs> of the franchise. <laughs> but, um, Marcy, is there any aspects of this film that kind of stand out to you as well? I don't know. Besides everything already mentioned, I just enjoyed it as a film. Like, I think it, like we've said, it does better. At, you kind of care about characters. So some of them you don't actually want to see killed, whereas I feel like, not just Friday the 13th, but just horror in general. It can get to a point where it's like, I don't really give a shit, hack them up. And that's kind of not really the point. So I think we do get a bit of like, I don't really want to see a lot of these people killed, but they're going to anyway. And I think just a lot of the different things that have been discussed just kind of come together in this film, at least for me, just make it one of the more memorable entries. Like, I don't know if there's anything else specifically because I feel like we've covered so much and I'm not sure if I've got anything else to add that hasn't already <laughs> been said. Um, you know, I, we have spoken about some of the performances, but I do think it is one of the better acted movies from the franchise, at least from memory. I think everyone is actually really solid in the roles. And I think especially like Corey Feldman being that he was a kid and Gremlins came out almost the same time. So it would have been working quite a bit. Like I think he really managed to not quite have like a maturity to the character, but he felt a little bit older than what he is portrayed. But deep down, you still know he is a little kid. And I just kind of really enjoyed that performance and we got something different out of uh friday the 13th movie with it I i'm just kind of sad like it was meant to be the last one but again we got the little hint at the end but i'm kind of sad that we didn't get like a teenage Corey feldman being like the jason killer that yeah. would have been mm. a cool franchise mm. Definitely. And we'll definitely talk about that in future episodes of the show, because essentially what I think is interesting, at least from here, and we'll go into this more in future episodes, Steve, mm. is how, in a way, this franchise was kind of going to do like what Halloween was originally going to set out to do, and that after the Michael Myers entries, they were going to go in a completely different direction. And having the Tommy Jarvis character probably being the next killer would probably be that next step. But of course, the reputation for five wasn't the best among fans, <laughs> so they basically backpedaled on that. So it'll be an interesting way uh, in today's uh, big franchise world where people feel like if you try to do something experimental with a franchise, the fans basically give backlash and then the next entry, they just kind of backpedal and stuff. They were kind of doing that back in the 80s as well. <laughs> yeah. Think of, think of uh, Halloween 3. But the, yeah. the interesting thing is that Halloween 3, I think, is more loved now than it was then. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. And Friday 5 is actually starting to get that same sort of reputation. It's very interesting. Mm. Yeah, I've had heard that as well. So the next episode of the show, Steve, will be very interesting, but we do get the part five. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think that's right. I think you want to give them the same, but different. You've got to change it up just enough to keep their interest, but don't change the formula. Don't change everything on us. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is what they finally got with the Friday the 13th. When you're talking about the characters, Marcy, who you don't yet want to see them all killed. Apart mm. from Ted and Axel, you don't want to <laughs> see much. them all killed. You know, they're still at this point, if not likable, at least not unlikable. Mm. Right. 
And I think they would lose that very soon. Like probably in the next entry is where you just could not wait to see some of these people dispatched. Yeah, it's kind of like basically it was all about the characters in the beginning, but then as the franchise goes on, and we see this with a lot of horror franchises, particularly with slasher ones, is that we kind of stop rooting for the characters and start rooting for the villain. Yeah, as soon as they become horror heroes, that's the death knell. It's like the uh, 2009 remake, right? I'm not a big fan of it because they tried to recapture the 80s feel, but they went so far the other way. There was like over-the-top like sexual gratuity. I'm no prude, but it was just over-the-top for the sake of being over the top. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that there was not one character in that movie that I liked at all. I was just happy to see them all go. Yeah. That's why I think these four movies together are just a perfect time capsule. I don't think you can recreate it at all. Definitely. But uh, Steve, I guess this could be a wrap on our conversation on uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, unless anyone has any last minute thoughts they want to say before we go into our final thoughts on the film. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we go. Anyways. uh, We don't want to go on four hours, right? Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I guess, Steve, I guess your final thoughts on the final chapter. I think it's one of the better entries, but not one of the best. It strays way too far from what the series was initially, which was a mother seeking vengeance. And then, okay, part two changes that. Now it's Jason seeking vengeance for the death of his mother. And then three just becomes anyone who's adjacent to Crystal Lake. It feels like it's getting away from them. This one still is on more solid ground than they would eventually come to be. But overall, I rate this about a six. It's a high middle. And uh, Marcy, your final thoughts on part four. I just really enjoy it uh, as a film. And I enjoy it as a Friday the 13th film. I think there's a lot of really good and positive things going for it. It's just something I have fun with. And, you know, for me, it's like a, it's a three and a half Corey Feldman not actually shaving his head out of five. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Pete, your final thoughts on the film. Oh, well, I'm an unabashed fan of this movie, <laughs> so, so I'm not going to agree with Steve, but but um, <laughs> I just think the characters are mostly likable, except for Axel. <laughs> it's creepy as fuck sometimes. Jason's pretty much unstoppable. It has great music. I like the music. And I'm never sure, I was going to mention the music, but I'm never sure with these movies how much is reused from previous movies. And yeah. some of the music in this, and there was a point I was going to make is, the, the bit at the very end where Jason's just finished his head slide down the machete, there's this like organy sort of dong sound, which is kind of really nice to sort of signal to you, okay, this is it. This is the big mm. ending sort of thing, right? From a musical point of view, it works really well. Like I said, I don't know how much of it's recycled, but for me, that was really good. It's uh, four and a half corkscrews out of five for me. <laughs> <laughs> For my final thoughts on this film, I think it's a pretty strong entry to the franchise. And if this film is was indeed the final chapter, but knowing horror, if you call something the final chapter, it never really is. Um, <laughs> I think it was a good way to kind of end the series on it. I think it is a much better film overall compared to part three, which I was more mixed on. Like, there's definitely some characters that do come across as very stocked, but there are definitely other characters who are pretty well-rounded. 
The performances are solid. I think it's very well directed. It has some great gore and special effects. And Ted White's performance of Jason is great. I would love to have seen him in other entries, but of course that wouldn't happen. But yeah, so overall, it's a pretty solid um, entry in the franchise. And it doesn't surprise me at all that this was a film that is beloved among Friday the 13th fans and considered a high point. But yeah, I guess that could be a wrap on our thoughts on Friday the 13th, the final chapter. So now, Steve, one of our other favorite segments of this show, and that is the segment that we like to call, Did They Deserve to Die? The segment where we try to figure out if there was a character that we didn't feel deserved to die. So the answer is Jimmy. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to get a little slightly different with mine. But uh, Steve, is there a character from this film that you felt didn't deserve to die? I really want to go to Jimmy, but I've got to give it to Sarah. She was, I don't know that I want to use the word prudish because that's got like a negative connotation to it. But she was just a sweet girl, just sort of discovering herself and sexuality and things like this. And then for this to happen immediately in the afterglow of her first experience is just wrong. It's just so sad. She's not the normal teen victim that we see in these. She really didn't deserve this. I felt like she was, she had the setup to be the final girl mm. and that was taken away from her. Mm. And uh, Bossy. Let's say the nurse at the beginning. I don't think she deserved to die. Mm. Uh, Jimmy, uh, yes. as we mentioned, but that random hippie lady, she did nothing. She made <laughs> oh, a sign didn't... that said, fuck off. Like, she didn't deserve to die. We didn't even talk about the random hippie she never hitchhiker. The, she never got to finish her banana. No, I think that's what actually made her a target was Jason saw that as like a sexual act, which he doesn't like. So she didn't deserve to die. She was just there trying to hitchhike a ride. Just like, come on. <laughs> I think it was uh, Jason would just had memories of uh, Chuck and Chili from the previous film since they were hippies. So he was like, oh, he, there's he another one of their group. Don't like hippies, eh? Clearly not, but um, mm. but Pete, is there a character from this film that you feel didn't deserve to die? I was gonna say Gordon, but I'm not sure if he died actually. Yeah, <laughs> I'm saying Gordon lived. I'm with. I would. Yeah, I'm gonna say Jimmy because, like, you know, the poor guy he got laid for the first time sounded like in forever, right? And he wasn't mm. a dead fuck anymore. And this is what happens, right? He goes down. He's got undies. He's showing them off to to uh, whatever his name is and uh last american virgin <laughs> he's, he's super happy and and that's looking, why he yeah. deserved to die in my well, opinion dude you yeah, don't yeah. don't take trophies that is oh, that yeah. has serial killer written all over it well <laughs> i was you know, well what i was really sad he's he, he was getting set to do it all again right he was down there getting a bottle of wine that's and true. looking for the corkscrew and found the corkscrew and that was the end of jimmy <laughs> Well, it wasn't just the corkscrew. He also got a cleaver got a to cleaver the face. In it's funny because, like, um, apparently Crispin Glover was very concerned about how they were going to do it. He was like, he for some people thought that he thought they were actually going to like stab him or something. He was really worried about it. <laughs> but yeah, so so Jimmy, he's uh, he's the one. I guess for me, I had to really think about this because, you know what, I'm also going to agree with, with you, Marcy. I think the hitchhiker, the hippie hitchhiker, didn't deserve to die. All <laughs> she was doing is she wanted to live. 
And, all, and, and Jason killed her while she was eating a banana. They, it was just it just felt so wrong to me. <laughs> and it was such a brutal death too because she just got stabbed in the back of the neck and you see her with banana dripping down her mouth, choking. And it's like, it's very gruesome. She was just wrong place, wrong time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that being said, I forgot to bring this up before. What's up with the layout of the cemetery where Pamela Voorhees? Just on the <laughs> side, the side of, of the road. It's on the ridiculous. side of the road now. It's just such a small little cemetery and well one thing for sure is this was the entry that actually gave us what her first name was because it wasn't mm. in the previous entries but i'm like this is like a very small cemetery what's going on here is this like the cemetery where all crystal lake puts their bad secrets so they don't want people <laughs> mentioning so they put pamela there maybe that's why the hippie got killed because she was like near the cemetery she where uh, exactly. she was too close to mommy's grave i don't know it was exactly but, but B, uh, who didn't deserve to die? Well, the, the hippie, obviously. I thought you were <laughs> going to name someone else. I thought that was one of them. Well, I was going to say Gordon the dog, but now I'm questioning whether he actually did die or not. Yeah, we're also, not sure. Well, even though we never saw the mum die, even though it was a deleted scene, but still, we never saw her body. So she, she did a poll and basically has disappeared from the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. We don't, know, we don't know her fate either. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, Steve, for always being a very awesome co-host and uh, taking the reins of this episode as well. Thank you, sir. Always good. Always fun to talk about these movies. Indeed, indeed. And uh, also thank you to both Marcy and Pete for coming on the show and talking about this entry with us. I loved it. Compared to uh, talking about Australian movies, this is uh, a little bit different. It's fun. (laughs) And yes, thank you so much for having me. And... uh... I get, but before we wrap up the episode uh, tonight, uh, Steve, where can people find you on the internet this week? Oh, find me over on Insta at Stephen T. Bolt. I'm on Letterboxd as Fulchirama, so you can see what I've been watching over there. And if you're at all interested, check out forcesofgeek.com. I have a column over there called Creep Shows and Fright Nights, a look back at 80s horror. Awesome. And uh, Marcy, where can people find you on the internet this week? And also your podcast with Steve as well. Yes. Uh, if you want to find me, the easiest place to go is supermarcy.com. It is home of the Super Network where uh, Bede and I host like five podcasts together and mm-hmm. also the podcast Steve and I co-host together, the King Zones uh, Book Club podcast. So you can uh, find all the podcasts there or look them up individually on your podcast players and all of that. And the Super Network uh, is on the socials as well. And uh, as am I, Super Marcy, uh, you can generally find me under Super Marcy or Super underscore Marcy on uh, Letterboxd and stuff. Awesome. And uh, Pete, where can people find you on the internet this week and also listen to your podcast, A Dingo Ate My Movie? Firstly, I don't know how you guys have so much time to do these podcasts. I, have- <laughs> I, I wonder that too, Pete. I only, got, I think, I only got nine episodes out or something this year, but I was sick the first half of the year. But um, I, I don't know where you get the time. I just find so much trouble. I'm not trouble. I just find it very time consuming. But anyway, it's a problem with having a solo podcast, I guess. Um, so you can find my podcast, A Dingo Ate My Movie. Anywhere you get podcasts, you can find the website at dingomoviepod.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm being continually told that my podcast is a terrible name on Facebook. You can find <laughs> my movie on Facebook and you can find me on Twitter. I think it's at Dingo Movie on Twitter as well. Yeah. So that's where you can find me. Awesome. 
And in terms of this podcast, you can find Bede and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake on all podcast streamers everywhere via the main flagship show, Bede versus the Living Dead's podcast feed. And you can also follow the podcast via the Bede versus the Living Dead social media accounts on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Facebook under Bede VSTLD or Bede versus the Living Dead on Facebook. You can find me on social media on Twitter and Blue Sky under Bede Jemine and as well as Letterboxd under Bede Jemine as well. So, yep, that is a wrap for this episode of Bede and Steve versus Camp Crystal Lake. We hope you all enjoyed it, everyone. And we will be back next month on the 30 for our thoughts on the fifth entry in the Friday the 30 franchise, Friday the 30 Part 5, A New Beginning. So stay tuned for that and see you all then. See you, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Feed and Steve vs. Camp Crystal Lake. Be sure to subscribe to the show via the official Feed vs. The Living Dead podcast feed podcast player of choice. Keep up to all updates of the show via the official Bead vs. The Living Dead Twitter and Blue Sky accounts at Bead vs. TLD and on Facebook under Bead vs. The Living Dead. The artwork was brought to you by Super Marcy and the music was brought to you by Demo. See you later everyone.